Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's session titled Exercise Prescription for Patients with Chronic Pain. Today's presenter is Sandy Hilton. She is a physical therapist at Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago, Illinois. So please help me in welcoming her to this morning's presentation. Thank you. Um, and I, I initially, I was supposed to be about six foot two and in much better shape, but Jason Silvernail is not able to be here. Um, so he asked me if I could do his presentation for him. And I have to let you know, I've spoken and taught for years now. I do stand-up comedy, I do improv. I don't get nervous in front of crowds. My hands are sweaty because I really respect the work that Jason does and what he does in the military and with fitness and what he puts online. And I am so nervous that I'm not gonna do this well. So um, it's just, right? Um, so if I, if I devolve into jokes about pelvic health and sex, that's just me trying to get back on my own footing, which is what I do most of. Um, so that, that's my disclaimer for if my, nerve, if my voice shakes, it's, it's out of respect for Jason. It also makes some of these pictures you're gonna see really funny, um, and I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, so what we're hoping to do today is to have you leave this room with a sense of everyone can exercise, and, and if they're having problems with it and problems getting active, that there are ways to help them do that. Um, we're going to review the benefits of exercise for chronic and persistent pain, and, and really get you knowing that there's resources out there for help um, and a strong rationale in the literature of why everyone can have some level of, of activity that is safe for them. Um, and also we're gonna go over a little bit of how to make that very individualized to the person. My disclosures is that I do own my own business, so it is in my best interest as a physical therapist to convince all of you that not only do people need to exercise and have activity levels, but if you're having a hard time doing that, there's an entire profession just waiting to help you. Um, and, and that does color some of what I say. Um, I also have written a book, and I am a co-host of Pain, Science, and Sensibility podcast with Corey Blickenstaff, who is sitting over here and has one of the last uh, sessions today, which you should stay for. It'll be fantastic. Um, and that images in this come from my other slide from my presentation later today, so that is not true. Um, but what I do need to put on here for Jason's benefit is that he is an active duty person, and the, I need to say that the information you're going to hear is in no way a, the U.S. military says this. This is Jason's individual work um, and is not reflective or representative of what the U.S. military says. Uh, I do have a little bit of overlap in experience with Jason in that I was for 25 years married to an active duty ranger guy. Um, and so I went through the military system not only as a PT that worked in it for a while, but also as a user of it and a spouse uh, through that system. And when we talk about and um, expectations that are in that system, it's different for the active duty and for the the dependence. Um, so I, I have a little bit of crossover with him. And as a physical therapist that works with pain, I see patients who fill out forms like this all the time. I am assuming that most people in this room do, that the people who come to us come to us because they didn't already get better. So we're seeing a biased sample 
of people who have tried a lot of really good things from a lot of very good practitioners and still aren't better. And I think that's an important thing to remember when we get that filled out on our uh, intake sheets. And some therapists I know would look at that and say, ah, I can't work with these people. I say, please send them to me if that's how you feel because these people deserve help and caring and kindness and, and some, some clear path through their problems. But often, they're seen as a burden on the healthcare system or someone that just isn't trying hard enough um, and they have somehow failed. But what we wanna know is how can we help them? Um, how can you help this person? And wouldn't it be really cool if there was some sort of magic pill or medicine that you could give to them something that would reduce their pain and increase their overall function and help them not have problems in the future would be preventative maybe as well. Uh, really cool if that also addresses the accompanying anxiety and depression that goes with low levels of fitness and, and a sense that you just can't do your daily activities. It'd be also very cool if that pill helped people get back into social activities and get back to work and improve their cognitive performance. The cool thing is that we can do some of that with exercise. And that sounds really easy, right? Everyone really likes to exercise. But we have a problem in this country and really around the world of, of obesity levels. And this is where I was looking at the pictures and I'm like, right. So Jason was literally used as a photographic image of what a fit military person looks like. This is not what a fit military person looks like. I am by the scales obese and about 53 pounds over my ideal weight. So I look at this and go, mm-hmm, you could put my picture up there as someone who needs to exercise more, probably needs better nutrition, and, and that's okay. Um, so I laughed at that because when we look, if you put Jason's picture on the clinical guidelines side and my picture on the, my patient's side, I really feel that. And it's an important thing to remember when our patients feel that too. Um, it's hard when you are not in good shape to say, can you help me get there? There is so much internal shame and problems and the people who will say, well, just stop eating exercise, stop eating, stop eating ice cream. Um, my, my active duty husband decided once that he needed to lose 15 pounds so he could get back to his sub seven minute mile for a test that was coming up. He stopped eating ice cream and stopped drinking beer and he lost the weight in two weeks. I do not eat enough ice cream or drink enough beer to stop it and lose weight. It's just it's not fair. Um, so there are, there are differences, and our patients live that. Um, so we look at how do we, how do, we do this? If we're going to prescribe exercise for people in chronic pain. If we look at this in three different stages, it can really help to walk you through um, what this would look like. And I'm going from a given that we're all going to agree that activity and exercise is important. So who here would think that exercise, loaded question, would help your patients with pain? Anyone who thinks yes, raise your hand. Excellent. Anyone who thinks exercise would make your people with pelvic pain hurt more, raise your hand. You can do both. That's, it can help and hurt. Because the real answer is it depends. And much of what it depends on is whether or not you set a, a program up that that person's going to be able to complete. The good news is that the evidence says if the person likes what they're doing, their likelihood of being compliant with it and consistent with it goes higher. Um, 
we've, there is, as I said, some evidence. This is uh, from Bush in 2011, and it is an open access paper. From the clinical practice world, we don't always have access to the full paper, so I like to point that out when literature is free and not behind a pain wall. Um, and it's a paper that looks at the uh, relative effect of different exercise on fibromyalgia, and it's a systematic review. Uh, and what they found is that there is a small, but, small but large, as research goes, uh, benefit to people with fibromyalgia from strength training. Ex aerobic exercise had some benefit, and a combination had some benefit in some studies, but strength training had a larger benefit. Now, that can be exceptionally intimidating to someone. What does that mean, strength training? The other thing we need to look at is, are all chronic pain patients the same, people dealing with chronic pain the same? And I'm going to guess if I pulled the room on that one, you would all resoundingly say no. Um, it's, it's more than you hurt, so here's what you have to do. There's a little bit of, of questioning that needs to go into that of, you hurt, let's look at the nature of your pain and what may be the drivers of it. And, um, how much of the problem that you're having is tissue deconditioning. Um, hold on. That's a not familiar with slides thing. Was, did I just skip one? Uh, so what we're going to do is look at the different parts of pain. There's nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and the, also the problem that happens when that becomes centrally mediated and centrally sensitized. So we're going to dive a little bit now into the physiology of pain so that we can make the why would you choose a specific exercise plan make sense. So we look at nociceptive pain. How many people think that that person hurts? Yay, okay, cool. Um, you really have to ask because it, ma it depends on how much it matters. I did, a, um, I did one of those things you do as a mom. Someone was, was hurt in front of me. I was at a swimming pool and I saw this person fall right next to the pool and they were sort of dribbling down towards the water. So I ran down the stairs from the bleachers, spraining my ankle in the process, got the kid, made sure they were okay. It wasn't until about two hours later that I realized that my ankle had swollen and was turning pretty colors. And the next day it was like purple and then it went through the whole green thing. It never hurt. It just didn't. There was clear tissue damage, but there was absolutely no pain with that. Um, I'm taking a picture for any of the two people in here that follow me on Facebook. I'm sorry. There, um, I'm taking this picture. I closed my fingers in the door uh, end of April. It was just like, just like you hear. And my, my two of my fingers got closed in the door. It hurt really, really bad for two hours and then stopped. And I have been taking pictures about every three weeks of the absolute disgustingly ugliness of what it looks like as a nail falls off and it heals. It's still really ugly. There's been no pain since those first two hours. So there can be clear tissue damage and no pain. Um, there can also be pain and no tissue damage. It depends on how locally sensitive they are. So we know that the tissue damage and pain are not the same thing, very poorly correlated. And I love this at the bottom. The asterisk is because he realizes that's not spelled right. Uh, consistent, correct cor clinical correlation is key. Uh, in that we need to ask, we need to know, does this mechanical problem and the pain have a, a tight correlation and cause and effect, or is it just sort of happened in the same person? And we have some other scientific proof on that one in the MRI studies that have been shown for 26 years now, I think, of 
looking at people that have no symptoms but have degenerative changes on their MRIs um, or CT scans. And that, this information can be very helpful for people. Katie did her talk earlier this morning and talking about people that the imaging that they saw really put permanent thoughts in their head about how fragile they were or that they couldn't exercise. And if you feel that, that the degenerative changes that show on a scan mean you can't bend over and tie your shoe, they're certainly unlikely to think you can go for a two-mile jog. Um, and there's been plenty out in the, the world and in the fitness world even that says that running is damaging to you. But we know through the evidence that it's not. Uh, so there, there's some messaging that we need to change to be able to get people to feel like activity is safe for them. The changes that occur in the central nervous system with persistent pain mean that you're going to have changes in your tolerance to input. It's possible that you will have hypersensitivity to light touch, just to light, um, to sound and smell and temperature. Vegas is one of the places that shows me how ramped up or not my nervous system is because it's really loud, it's really bright, it's really crowded, and if I'm edgy, or not feeling great, I can't actually tolerate that very well. But if I'm well rested and not agitated, it's kind of cool. Um, this is probably the most pleasant Vegas trip I've had in six years. Um, so kudos to the conference because that's a that's a big change for me. But also lets me know I'm doing pretty good on those fitness things that we should do. So my central sensitized state is coming down, um, and you'll you'll see that in your patients. You'll see indicators of uh, Pressure that shouldn't, pressure tolerance that shouldn't be there. You'll see indications that they are more aggravated than you would expect them to be. That's not them making it up. The Gordon Waddell used to, to say that it's symptom magnification. If you have hyperalgesia or if your pain switches from side to side or there's cogwheeling, he came out in I think 1998 and said he was wrong. But you can still find in some fitness and um, work hardening programs work on symptom modification or magnification and Waddell signs, even though the guy who that's named after said, we know that's not true. So these things, these changes take some time to filter into practice. Just to go over just quickly again that sensitization is allodynia, hyperalgesia, and hyperesthesia. These are the people I'm saying need to get active. So yes, you hurt. And yes, that's okay. You can hurt and be active. And what can happen is the biology that supports the increased pain response can also be used to decrease that. Um, we know in nociceptive problems that it, it's not really simple. And this picture even is a rather simplified drawing. I saw out in the lobby the textbook of pain is one of my favorite books um, of looking at the current research. It's not something I have ever read cover to cover. Um, I do torment my students when they come and tell them, they ask what they should read before they come to the clinic. And I say, well, you need to go through the textbook of pain. Um, it's this big and weighs about a lot and um, costs about $200, so it scares them. It's a good thing to do to students. Um, so we, we know from this that there are, are nociceptive signals, danger signals that come into the, the central nervous system and that that is mediated and driven through an um, uh, inflammatory neuroimmune process. We know that that creates lowered thresholds in the spinal cord. It's also reversible. Um, the neuropathic 
mechanisms that are part of that can be from primary lesions to the nerve. Um, it can be from an injury. And there are mechanical and inflammatory and immune processes involved in that as well. It may or may not change motor behavior. It may or may not change reflex activity. These facts are important when we start talking about how can we change it. So I don't go into the clinic with my patients about the probable load of neuroinflammatory mediators and the signaling in their dorsal horn. But what I do talk to them about is knowing that there are real physiological changes that are happening. You're totally not making this up. Because some people think that, that when we say move, that we're saying, we don't think your pain is real. You should just move. Just get over it. And that is in no way what it says. So the biology helps to support why we want them to do this. As, the, as pain persists, the central mechanisms or the central sensitization changes the ascending input, but also the descending inhibition. And there is disinhibition in the spinal cord and disinhibition from the central nervous system, where things that should be calmed down are actually being ramped up. And that explains also why, how come you get this what seems to be out of proportion response to a little bit of input or a little bit of touch. And that is also can be used, I think, to calm down a person who is scared to exercise. So while we need to know all of this, we don't need to be telling it to our patients all the time, I do have some patients who want the biology, and then I will give it to them. But otherwise, I need to know it. Um, I just won't, won't ever oversimplify or overcomplicate. So what does all this tell us? What does it mean for what we can do? Uh, it, it means that you're going to have patients that are sensitized, that hurt when you want them to move. And, and any exercise or activity might bother them. It also means that you really need to dose the response. That Bush paper from 2011 mentioned that if you, you have to find very carefully, load it enough, stress the system enough to make a change, but not so much that it flares them up or bothers them or causes adverse effects. In some patient populations, that's a really narrow window where, where it might be a matter of minutes that's the difference between I can tolerate this and I can't get out of bed for two days. And we need to, to really be careful how we do that. But it is possible. And long-term changes are really greater than short-term symptoms, which is a very nice way of saying you're going to be uncomfortable at the beginning of this but it should just be uncomfortable. And we're gonna modify your exercise load, your activity load, so we can stay in that window of enough, but not too much. And if you want more information on the biology of that, Kathleen Sluka's team, which is the reference here, is doing some really interesting work on the mitochondrial changes with um, pain and the, the advent of exercise into that system and how it changes. So enough of the physiology, we'll get into the exercise. Um, that's Jason, apparently after a hard workout. Uh, but the, the quote here is a definition of what structured exercise is, and I'm going to read it because I think it's great. And does this not make you want to do it? Planned, structured, and repetitive bodily movements that are performed to improve or maintain one or more components of physical fitness. It's hard enough for me to get up and go running every morning if I find running boring. If I'm thinking of that as what I'm going to do, it really kind of takes the fun out of activity. We know we should make it a little more interesting. We know we should make it pertinent. And if you talk about exercise and go by the 
colleges and the American College of Sports Medicine on dosing, this is also a little intimidating. We're going to tell someone that is in persistent pain and flares up walking to get their mail that they now need to be better to be able to do 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise um, most days of the week. And moderate would at least be a brisk walk, but enough to get up to 150 minutes per week. Resistant training to your whole body, two to three sessions per week. And then on top of that, a general activity level. That's a very large ask for people. And it might be off-putting. They found that 22% dropout rate in most studies for people that start exercise. And in some, it's almost 30%. So they're not going to get the benefits that exercise could give them because they've stopped. So we know exercise helps people with chronic pain. We know that the effect sizes are OK. They're not huge. Um, but they're OK. It goes in the right direction. Um, we know there are doses of, of aerobic exercise and resistant training that is recommended for exercise and for fitness. And we know you have to find a really better way to sell exercise because the best exercise plan in the world will not work if people aren't doing it. And they need to do it enough to make a change. So how do we do that? How do we tailor the exercise for the person? We can use the, the evidence that's out there and talk around training around things or changing them. Remember what I said about the you want to do enough to make a difference, but not so much that you create a flare. That is going to be different for every person you see. There isn't a protocol. There's some principles you get to work with. Uh, we, we know that aerobic exercise is really helpful for pain. That's Kathleen Sluka's work. And it can improve to restore normal descending inhibition, to remove the disinhibition disruption. And we know we can start an exercise program really anywhere. And anytime you start an exercise program, you're going to experience some soreness. And they have to know that that's OK, that it's safe. It's a, the phrase is sore but safe. And I don't remember where I heard it first, but I like it. Um, so if you're in the room and you're the one that coined that phrase, thank you. And let me know, and then I'll credit you. Um, so tailoring exercise for nociceptive pain. There's some things that are better than others. So we know for knee pain, things that are, are um, a little bit unweighted but still helpful. Someone who has really sharp pain when they run probably isn't going to start with a running program. Doesn't mean they can't run ever. It just means they're not going to start there. And it's OK to change it, to say, what do you like the best? What do you feel the best doing? Start there. What about for people who are really extremely sensitized? Um, it's a little more complicated to do that. I say a little more, and Jason said it's much more complicated. I guess that shows our, our sunny and not quite as sunny disposition on, on how hard is this. Uh, but I think anything can be adapted. It's the heart of a physical therapist. If you want to get back to running, I'll figure out a way to make that happen. Um, we do that for people with bilateral amputations. Um, it's, there's, there's ways. It is important to know that all your best handouts and things aren't going to be sufficient. They're helpful sometimes, but they're not, that's not it. You can't just hand someone a pamphlet and expect them to have success. And remember that starting any new exercise program is going to increase pain in anyone. It's true for every single person in this room. If we change it, you're going to have an adaptive period. But that's good news. And 
And keeping in mind for our patient population is what we want to remember is that you yourself are not going to want to do something that makes you feel worse. You're going to want to do something that makes you feel better. Um, so our patients are human. It's important to remember some things are threatening. I know people that would never go in a gym, but they do full uh, like body weight exercises and sort of like parkour training that is astounding, but they absolutely hate gyms and think they're horrible. If I told that person the only way to help for them was to go to a gym, that would be not good. Um, but if I tell someone who loves going and lifting weights that they have to go do body weight exercises out on the lakeshore in Chicago, they're going to not want to do it. Just match it to the person. We get to rebrand the exercise to something that they like. Um, but another question, so I keep saying exercise, and another question is, how, how do you dose it? What if they don't even like the word? And if you call it exercise, they're immediately going to shut down and say no. Um, and how can, in that situation, do you work to get enough in there that you're going to make a change? We can change the words a little bit, as Katie said this morning, to get um, watch the words you're using and change it in a way that's going to be accepted as a positive in that person. Maybe call it activity, not exercise. Maybe we can work on the devices that are out there. I saw in the exhibit hall someone had a uh, Fitbit as a, a prize for giving your business card to them so they can contact you later. I don't think I won. Um, but that's a helpful thing. It, it's, they're not great for some of the claims that the wearable industry has made, but they are fantastic for helping people know, have I done a little bit better than the day before? Have I done a little bit better than the week before? And that's really what we're looking for, is that incremental progress from you started here, and we're going to get you here. Here's our, here's our progress towards it. Let's make it doable. It can be fun. This can be exercise. You don't have to go to the gym. And I always tell my patients, if you hate swinging, don't do this. But if you love swinging, do this. Because we know that the higher, there's a higher likelihood of success if you enjoy what you're doing. The other thing to remember is that whether you call it exercise or activity, if you're getting a moderate amount of effort in your person and you're doing it 30 minutes a day, we would work up to that, and you're aiming for 150 minutes a week, you're going to find the benefit of this. Um, my, my army husband, um, it hurt to run with me because he ran a sub seven minute mile and at my best I'm 10 or 11 minutes. So he said it hurt his knees to run that slow. Um, and I would just say go. He'd lap me on things. But I know that if we put heart rate monitors on, him running at my speed that made me tired and was a really good workout was not even gonna blip for him because it's a different fitness level. And we have to keep that in mind with our exercise prescriptions. So you, I, um, I will defend my patients all the time when they say, if I walk a quarter of a mile, that's a really hard workout. Well, if their perceived exertion of a quarter of a mile is a really hard workout, I'm not going to tell them it's not. I am going to try and get them to where they don't even notice a quarter of a mile. But, but that might be where they're starting. And I think we should respect that as, as amount of effort they're putting into it. We can take that framework of activity versus exercise and put it into a prescription that makes sense to that person and that they're more likely to do. So walking and dancing counts. Yoga's fantastic, except for some people don't like it. Um, so be careful with your words, because I just don't want the what, like, this is what you have to do to get better behind a fence of I'm not going to do that. 
because then the person starts to think, well, I can't get better because I'm not going to do this thing you told me I had to do. So be flexible and fluid with what you recommend. Um, even golf counts as exercise. Some people will say it doesn't, but if you're walking and not in a cart, then you are getting exercise. And for people who, if they can ride the cart and then go on each hole and do exercise, that might be really fantastic exertion for them. So even stealing that away. Uh, I was talking to Corey a little bit earlier today and saying that it, it has a lot to do with perspective. Like my story about my 11 minute mile versus the seven minute mile. We both were working really hard and it was a really good workout. But you can get in your head sometimes and think, well, if I can't do that, that, that ideal, then it doesn't count. And that's not true. And it's a, it can rob the hope and the self-efficacy from patients, from ourselves if we're not careful. So exercise and activity, it is good to increase it. Education alone will get people walking a little bit more, but if you can get them on a consistent activity scale, you can increase that even more. How much of a dose do we need? The evidence would say um, enough to make a change. That's not, the systematic reviews say that with consistent exercise, you can increase function. That's pretty basic. Um, but what is really cool with what they're also showing is that we can help with pain as well as function. Uh, we can help with some prevention of some population health issues for uh, heart problems and digestion problems. I have a, a lady that was referred to me for constipation and she had been for six years to really good endocrinologists and had been to acupuncture and um, functional medicine and done the, the elimination diet that's recommended for constipation and done everything, but she was still constipated and exceptionally frustrated. So I asked her what, what was different from when she wasn't constipated to when she is now, and it wasn't opium endorsed. She was no, on no medication. It was just a, her endocrinologist was saying it was a slow transit constipation. Um, so it turns out that the thing that she was doing differently from before was that she used to run, but she had a back injury, and I'm not making this up. She went to her, a physical therapist to see about her back. This, this PT ten, actually was running marathons and was exceptionally fit. She was told by the PT, well, if you run, you're going to put your sacrum out of alignment, and that will make your neural problems worse, so you shouldn't run. So the patient not only stopped running, but took from that, this person runs marathons and is exceptionally fit, but is telling me that I can't run. So that must mean that I am so not okay that I have to be really careful with everything I do. Because um, a very smart woman who said, wait, you run and it's safe for you. You run marathons, but I'm so fragile that I can't even eek. So she shut down a lot of exercise. So I did very high tech for her. I got her to put her phone out and the free Couch to 5K app for getting people to run 30 minutes uh, is what she was doing on. It took her seven weeks, I think, to get to the third week of the program because she was scared. Um, and at that time, since that time, she has not been constipated anymore. Nothing else has changed. Um, it was like, cool. So I told her she can't ever stop running, which is probably not good either. But um, once, once she gets a little bit more robust, we'll go for some other things. Um, but that was put in her head that she had to stop, and it made a real physical difference. Lots of money spent on trying to get back to comfort. 
lots of fear and thoughts about what her, the rest of her life was going to be. When I saw her first, she was 30. That's a lot of years left of being afraid to do things. So exercise is good, and it doesn't have to be a sub-seven-minute mile, which is good news. Um, but what do we need to do? We need to, we need to dose it. We need to, to know um, where we can start and how to go. The phrase start low and go slow is really helpful. You can start exactly where you are and add to it. So how do we how do we know how we're going to do this? We're going to get them to move. We're going to use activity rather than exercise to make it a little less threatening. But then we need to look at compliance. What we want for the compliance, remember the slide that said 20 to 30% dropout? We want to work on their expectation so that they feel like they can do better. We want the confidence that they can do this. And we want enough positive outcome that they're willing to stick to the task because it's hard. It's really hard. And if you don't get through the part that if you, like, you start to work out and it hurts, so you stop and rest for a couple weeks, and then you go work out again and it hurts, you're doing this little boom and bust thing that never really gets you anywhere, um, which uh, somewhat describes my running program parts of the year. I'm going to claim Chicago because I'm really good when the weather's nice, and then it gets to be mm, 20 degrees out, and my running program just sort of stops. And spring hurts when you go back out and start again when you haven't been running through the winter. That's normal, though. Building self-efficacy so you know you have the keys to do what you need to do is huge. Um, it's so that it's an internalized belief that, that when you have a problem, you also have the skills to solve it. And I think that's one of the things, as health professionals, we are obligated to teach our patients. I know some fields that's a little more difficult, but for PTs, I'll hold you to that standard of there's nothing we do to people that we can't help them learn how to do for themselves, and, and it should be a priority. So what do we want? We want mastery, a, a verbal persuasion, symptom reduction, and modeling. And this concept has been around for a little bit. Virgil's, Virgil's classic. They are able who think they are able. And if we put in their minds that they can't, they'll feel like they can't. But if we help them learn that they can, then that sticks too. So the patients need to be involved in choosing, and they need to be involved in, in ownership of the design. It has to be realistic. It really has to fit in their life. I don't own a treadmill or have access to one. So if you tell me to run on a treadmill through winter, it's going to be like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. But I don't have one. Um, and it has to be achievable. We need to stack up the wins so that on the hard days, we have the courage to do it again. It's the persistence that, that really helps with activity and exercise. And remember, again, just the patients have to be at the center of this. So we're going to persuade them. We're going to help them convince that we'd be coaches we, on their side and cheerleaders of, of some realistic work. We can help them use examples from their past. Like my lady, she used to run. She used to love to run. So I just connected her with something she did before that she knew she could do before. Um, it took a lot of conversations. Verbal persuasion is um, people that have been in pain for a long time often aren't believed about their pain or that they're working hard enough. And you'll run into situations where they're told, well, if you just think positively, this won't bother you. Um, or if you would just 
stop eating ice cream, you would lose weight, or things like that. It's, they're not necessarily helpful, and we need to be offsetting that. Uh, it probably needs a lot more of us offsetting it versus one comment. Uh, you know, that's like the, the one negative feedback I got from a patient that I remember, but I conveniently forget the hundred positive ones. It's human nature. And I know, Jason knows, I know, that you, you can do this and you've done it before. You've done it for your own self and you can help people do it. Um, but that's the message we want to give to our patients, is that I know you can do this, my lady with running. You can also tell them things like, I know you go through a lot of challenges and a lot of people would have given up, but you're still fighting. And we know that's true because they're there in our offices. We know they haven't given up. We know they're still working on it. So just ideas of things you can say that come honestly. They can't be platitudes that sound like they're on a Hallmark card. They need to be real and relate to their life for them to believe you. And then self-efficacy for symptom reduction. Just remember that the more you do it, the more you help them violate the expectancy that it's going to go badly by having it go well, the better off they're going to be. And just help them. If we find that it's better in person than online, but for some people online is the only way to do it. And group settings with at least one person who's successful instead of a lot that aren't. We're going to build resilience and promote self-management so that when you see a patient like this, instead of thinking, I need to run, you actually are like, hey, I know what to do to help you. And then very briefly, because I think I just went out of time, um, exercise is helpful for chronic pain, but compliance with it is difficult. And it's helpful if we think activity instead of exercise and understand that the dosage is going to be very individual for people, but you can really help them by finding things that they enjoy to do and start them where they are and build them up. Um, that self-efficacy idea of mastery, verbal persuasion, symptom reduction, and modeling can be exceptionally helpful. And if you would like questions from Jason himself, here is his information. So thank you um, for listening. And if anyone has any questions on the concepts, I can help you. If you have questions on his resources, I can help you too, because I looked them all up before I gave his slides. I think it, yeah. I don't know if they're still recording or not. Um, okay. What, what are some like absolute red flags typically when you're doing these chronic pain patients? I'm not talking about like mental exam findings, but what are like some instances where you're like, I don't know what I should be thinking about, but it's just something that you guys think you're just gonna As from a, from a physical therapy perspective, if someone comes in with pain, what would be a red flag for me? Um, uh, uncontrolled blood pressure where they're not seeing anyone um, because sometimes people have a cardiologist they're following and we can work within those parameters um, so I am I am lucky in the that I work with persistent pain predominantly now with either spinal injuries or pelvic issues and they have all been to physicians before they come to me um, and screened for things but if I suspect um, anything like cancer that's been undiagnosed for red un, blood that shouldn't be where it is. Um, you know, those, those standard red flags, sudden onset of bowel bladder or numbness that, that has not been screened. 
then I would do that first. Because you can't load a system that's not ready to be loaded. Um, Oh, personality types. No, no. Personality types is just a matter of finding out what, where you have to meet them. Um, but that's part of what I said. I really recommend that healthcare providers take improv because you learn to, to really fit it to the person and believe what they're telling you and work a way to do it. It's that yes and. Um, there are, if someone has dementia and cannot remember from time to time, what I would do would be work with the people that help them. Um, so we could set up a, a program that can work in their environment if they're not able to cognitively follow along or be in charge. So self-efficacy might go to their environment more than to the person in that instance. Does that answer that better? Okay. See, I go right to the physical. I can load anything, not broken bones. Yep. What do I say? If you couldn't hear that, what do I say to someone who comes back from a very carefully thought out plan and they're worse um, and they hate it? <laughs> um, we would, I would look at that as, well, that's one thing we're not going to do and where do we need to adjust? It's not a loss so much as a, that just tells me we need to change. What I wouldn't say is let's do this for six months and see what happens because they are unlikely to do that. Um, but there's, people also get bored, right? It's like it works great for a month and then suddenly it's not. They might just need to switch that up and, and have more of a cross-training concept. For my, so how long, do, how long do I work with someone? Uh, I have the luxury of working in my own out-of-network private practice that I own with a business partner who has the same concepts. So while we are obligated with the VA, TRICARE, or Medicare regulations for patients who have that insurance, we are not for the others. So I get to set up my um, treatment frequency and duration based completely on the patient's goals and motivation levels. And I know that's slightly weird for the physical therapy perspective. Before I owned my own practice, um, I had to do what I call insurance therapy, where you get to do what the insurance company lets you do, and you try and create the best program possible within that. Um, and that would vary in persistent pain and with pelvic health based on the insurance thing. Sometimes you'd get two visits. Sometimes you'd get 12 visits in three weeks. It's, that's variable. But I live in a rare world now where I get to treat the person and their goals. Ah, um, well, we know, we know that strength improves over a 12-week period. Um, most things heal and resolve over a 12-week period. Regression to the mean occurs during that time, too. So the joke is that I really want to see people eight weeks after an injury, because no matter what I do, I have like an 85% chance of them being better anyway. Um, the, the people that aren't better, it, what I want to see is a week-to-week -week improvement. Even though I know strength takes time to develop and endurance takes time to develop, I want a positive trend, and there should be guidelines that we can see from week to week. That I will go over way more detail in pelvic function in my talk later. Cool? Any other questions? Excellent. Thanks.